Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Salt Lake Tribune's faith coverage. Senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack is on assignment in the Middle East, so I'm joined today by our colleague, Tribune reporter Tony Semerad. Welcome, Tony. Hello, everybody. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcast and our complete newsletter. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormon Land. Now for today's show. After bursting onto the scene in 2016 by releasing leaked videos of Apostles for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, privately discussing a range of topics, from politics and piracy to same-sex marriage and marijuana, Ryan McKnight, with help from his colleague, Ethan Gregory Dodge, set up a website called Mormon Leaks, which gave way to the Truth and Transparency Foundation and began exposing the inner workings of the Utah-based faith and eventually other religions. Their goal? Push churches to be more open and honest about their practices. They revealed how much top Latter-day Saint leaders were paid. They uncovered headline-grabbing abuse allegations, and they showed slices of how much wealth the LDS church was accumulating. Now they're shutting down, but with one last big scoop, the widest and deepest look ever at the church's vast U.S. real estate holdings, totaling 1.7 million acres and making the faith the nation's fifth largest private landowner. Ryan McKnight and Ethan Gregory Dodge join us today via Zoom to discuss their findings, the work of their foundation, what it accomplished, why they're closing shop, and whether they achieved what they set out to do. Ethan, Ryan, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you guys for having us. We're excited to be here today. So, um, Ryan, let me start with you. And Ethan, you can answer the same question, but how are you feeling right now? The final <laughs> big project is out the door. Your foundation is closed, though the content remains on the website, of course. Are you mm. feeling happy, sad, relieved? Um. Yeah, all of the above, probably a little bit. It's uh, it's a bittersweet moment. Uh, you know, it's it's been in the works for a while. We've been sort of quiet on the public facing end, but you know, Ethan and I are, are have always been in regular contact and con contact, and we've been uh, sort of planning this wind down for a while. So, in in a way, it is a relief to have it sort of all out there. We got the story out. We kind of you know announced the closure. Um, I think I'm both excited for whatever is to come and, uh, you know, disappointed that that we couldn't make truth, truth and transparency a more a more long term and sustainable project. Hmm. Ethan, what about you? Yeah, similarly, uh, when we when I was writing our last press release announcing our shutter, I'm not going to lie, I got pretty nostalgic and sad, <laughs> but uh, um, but as I was working on uh, releasing this story. And then there's also, there's a couple more things that we got to do with the website to wind it down completely. Um, as I work on those things, it's actually more of a relief, to be honest with you. And I do think that going forward, I mean, since then I've started freelance reporting and and if, uh, and if stories do come up, I, I think we can do them on a freelance basis. And I actually think that that's going to be a better arrangement for us anyway. So in the long run, I think it's a better, I think it's, it's definitely the right thing to do right now. Yeah. So, so tell our listeners, cause this is Mormon land briefly about your individual faith journeys. Ethan, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Um, born and raised in, um, well, I was born in Salt Lake, but raised in Utah County. Um, and 
very much, uh, yeah, raised in a very orthodox LDS home. Um, my parents were in leadership positions in my ward for my entire youth. In fact, my dad was in the bishopric um, and came with me to Mutual every week and was often teaching my my uh, deacon and teacher's quorum classes, right? And, um, and my entire family, yeah, we approached our faith from a very orthodox standpoint. And then... Um, um, I, let's see, I got, I wasn't super prepared to talk about this part, <laughs> but, um, I, I've said it so many times it should be easy by now, but anyway, they, uh, I, um, let's see in about 2015, um, I found out about, um, I, it was, it kind of started with the gospel topic essays, um, to be honest with you. And, um, when I found out that Joseph Smith, um, largely used a rock and a hat, um, to, to, to write or translate the book of Mormon, I, I was honestly, I felt very betrayed by that, um, because that's not what I grew up believing. And actually I, I was told that story on my mission and I actually denied it. Uh, an investigator brought it up and, and for me to be in that position for, where an investigator actually knew more about the history of the church than I did. And I was an official representative for the church. That was, that was really hurtful. Um, and, uh, and, and that kind of opened a can of worms. Um, and I slowly, um, I, I slowly realized the church wasn't what I was taught it was. Um, and for, and for me, it was easier to just leave the faith entirely. Um, I, I recognize for other people, that's not the, that's not the right course. And I, I, I believe people should do what makes them the happiest. And for me, uh, leaving the LDS church altogether was the best thing for me to do. However, I still strongly identify as a Mormon. And, um, actually I, I prefer the label secular Mormon rather than ex Mormon. Um, just because the culture growing up in Utah County is so such a core part of my identity um, that I just I can't give that part up. I see. Ryan, what about you? Um, yeah, I mean, a similar trajectory uh, as Ethan, maybe just a couple years earlier than him. Uh, I think it was in 2013 that I first sort of, you know, stumbled upon some information that didn't you know, quite line up with the uh, narrative I'd been taught my entire life. I was also born and raised in the church and served a mission, married in the temple, all that, all that good stuff. Um, yeah. So, and I think the, the biggest, uh, the, the initial sort of uh, faith shattering things that, that really grabbed my attention were the details of how polygamy was practiced. I was sort of under a, under the impression of sort of a different uh, method of practicing it, if you will. Uh, and also just how institutionalized the racism was, uh, you know, up until 1978 and arguably even after that, but even you know, just looking at prior to 1978, um, I didn't realize just sort of how overt and out in the open the racist rhetoric was. Um, and, and those were the sort of the first issues that, that really made me, you know, reevaluate everything I believed in. And once I finished that, I, I landed on the side of, uh, you know, I can, I can no longer continue as a believer. 
So um, Ethan and Ryan both tell us a little bit about what led you to undertake this, um, frankly, kind of massive project documenting the the church's uh, U.S. land holdings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was kind of an, you know, it was kind of an evolution. It wasn't like a, a sort of a, a real sort of defining moment, if you will. But we've obviously, since the very inception of Mormon Leagues, been interested in, in financial issues with the Mormon church. I think Dave in the introduction mentioned, you know, the the uh, pay of the top authorities, which we've shed light on. And um, I think he either explicitly or mentioned or alluded to the uh, stock portfolio that we, we uh, story that we broke. Um, and so we've always been interested in getting a better understanding of the church's uh, finance and, and specifically their financial holdings. And so we were sort of casually, you know, here and there looking at brainstorming. How can we um, if I remember correctly, it originally started out with us wanting to try to map as much as we could the for profit businesses the church owned. I think that's kind of how it how it started. And then. Um, you know, we were we were, of course, looking at uh, these LLCs and, and maybe some land records. And we noticed this commonality that we mentioned in our article, this uh, particular address. And that's when we caught the idea that, well, maybe we can, you know, map properties. And, you know, we found this website through. A, uh, actually, we were told about the website from uh, somebody who was helping us with this. He mentioned that he'd heard of this website. And we, you know, Reonomy is the name of the, the website, uh, reonomy.com. And we were able to, uh, you know, with this common address that we found, we were able to sort of open up a, a rabbit hole <laughs> and went down it. So I don't know, that that's kind of how we, that's the sort of Cliff Notes version of how it progressed mm -hmm. as far as getting into this. Well, uh, l let me dish to Ethan first on this, but you definitely weigh in too, Ryan. Um, you know, the, the 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 findings in the database take us in so many different directions with regard to news, but I'm interested what what you thought were some of the most interesting findings from the database. Um, to me, just the vastness of the portfolio, to be honest with you, and and to think that it is as as both us and the Tribune reported that it is almost undoubtedly an undercount of of the actual entire portfolio. <clears throat> is really um is to me personally is quite jarring right um and it uh yeah i we'd always heard like there was a there was an article a few years back talking about how the church is the largest private landowner in the state of florida and there was always this speculation that they're probably the biggest one in the u.s too and 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 that we always just heard these rumblings and uh and to see that that actually was the case, not necessarily that they're the largest, but that they are definitely up in the top five, um, as as Noyce said in the beginning, uh, was was despite our suspicions, was still very surprising. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so um, and and if it's an undercount, it could be a pretty big undercount, right? Um, uh, they could, of course, the church could maybe be up at the top who knows what what's your best guess as to what you think the church's land holdings might be do, do you have one? Oh, I, I'm so far from an expert in this that I'm not even going to take a stab at that. <laughs> Ryan, what about you? You want to jump off that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, even people who 
who've always assumed that the church had a lot of land. I don't think they would have ever guessed 1.7 billion acres, which I think is what the database shows. Um, and I don't, because we probably, none of us could probably have ever guessed that number to begin with. I don't know that I could ever even come close to guessing what what the real number is, but I I do agree that, I mean, well, it's definitely higher than that. I mean, the question is, is how much higher, you know, who knows, but the other issue too is on, you know, the dollar values that are reflected in there um, are definitely not accurate or up to date. um, And most likely are, lower than what the actual numbers are. So um, I think that, you know, 15 or $16 billion in assessed value that shows up in that Excel, it's important to remember that that is probably somewhere more between the 20 and $30 billion just on those properties Mm -hmm. is my sort of eyeball guess. And that's not counting income that the church might be getting from properties, right? That they're leasing, they might be leasing, right? You know, so well, that they're definitely leasing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I'm just that, saying in those properties that are being leased. Yes. Yeah, they're they're on there, and of course, you know, people with more expertise in commercial real estate could probably look up some of those larger buildings and know what the average price per square foot is and mm-hmm. get an idea of what the church is bringing in in rents. Um, but it's, I'm sure it's a, I, no doubt it's significant and um, and uh, and would be interesting if down the road we can shed additional light on that. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's been one of your kind of core foundational components of your mission to be urging transparency and accountability um, for for faiths like this. Uh, specific to land, what, what, why do you believe the church should be more transparent about the land that it owns? Well, just simply because, you know, land would be a line item on their on their financials. And um, even if you looked at sort of a, you know, high level view of their financials, you would, you would still be able to sort of see um, what their land holdings were. And, you know, we take a pretty hardline position that at a minimum uh, the church has an ethical obligation to publish their annual financials. So um, I think just simply by, by the way, by, by the fact that, that this would be included in those uh, financials is something that is important for the public to understand. And, um, you know, just like any business and, you know, the, the, the Mormon church is a, is, is a not-for-profit religion, but it's still a type of a business that is a type of a business. And they obviously engage in some for-profit endeavors. Um, they are going to, the whole purpose of accumulating assets is to uh, ensure that the business stays a going concern. It, it, it's help, to help ensure continued revenue. So the assets play an integral part in the church's financial makeup and the way they make decisions, uh, you know, in regards to those finances, Mm -hmm. anytime you're opening your checkbook, uh, and making a donation, um, you know, I think you have, uh, I I think whoever you're donating to has an obligation and ethic, whether it's a legal obligation or not in the church's case, they don't have a legal obligation, but I, I think they have an ethical obligation to disclose these types of things so people can see specifically, you know, what their money is contributing to. And that's not to say people should think that uh, this is a bad thing. I mean, uh, I'm sure that plenty of people are proud to see this, that their uh, tithing helped build this uh, real estate portfolio. And I, while I may sort of disagree with it on principle. I have no problem with people taking that position if that's um, the position they want to take uh, because it's an informed position. 
Uh, and that's really what we're trying to get after. And, and along those same lines, I mean, it, if our Twitter replies are any testament to how a lot of LDS folks feel proud about this real estate portfolio, then, then I don't know what else is. But, um, but I also think that there's a larger conversation to be had here at the moment that um, our country finds itself in. Um, I don't know about, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know about the stats across the rest of the country, but where I'm at in the Bay Area, um, the, the unhoused population is almost at an all-time high, if not an all-time high. And um, while I, I, what, no matter what side of the aisle you, fi- you fall on this issue, I do think that, there, that this plays into the larger national discussion to be had about who can own land, who gets to own land who does, who doesn't, that type of thing. Um, and and I, I, I think it's, I, yeah, I think it's a valuable point to, to bring up in that conversation. Let's, let's turn now to a more overall look at, at truth and transparency. Um, what do you, and if we can start with you, what do you view as your, your biggest gets, your biggest accomplishments? You said start with me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think... Um, to be honest with you, I, I the us uncovering the $32 billion in the U.S. stock market, I think, was kind of what started. That is what started Truth and Transparency. That's when we that was the first like investigative reporting we'd actually done. Uh, everything up to that point was just kind of like, oh, here's this thing. We're going to put it out and let the uh, and let other media outlets report on it and do their own investigations. And but that was the first time that we that we kind of Ryan and I kind of looked at each other and said, we can do this, too. Right. We can do some reporting. And and that's when the newsroom truth and transparency was born. Um, and so I, I mean, I always, I always come back to that just because it was so influential in both mine and Ryan's life in the trajectory of our newsroom. Um, and, uh, and that's a, yeah, it's a huge one, but, uh, and then uh, there's been some great reporting that, uh, main that doesn't, wasn't necessarily built on top of it, but added to that discussion when the Washington Post revealed uh, that whistleblower report of the $100 billion. And then the Wall Street Journal has done some fantastic reporting, actually interviewing representatives from the church about that portfolio, right? Um, And then on top of that, too, I think the Sean Escobar story where he confronted Sterling Van Wagenen, um, who had sexually molested him as a child. And um, I think that was was huge as well, um, namely because... Uh, Van Wagner is now behind bars. Um, now, Van Wagner, for those who may not know, is a prominent LDS filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and his victim came out, of course. So he, he's had his name is you know, you're using his name because he's agreed to that, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So we yeah, we really Sean. Sean was really good friends with Van Wagner's kids growing up um, and ha- was at a sleepover um, one night and and uh, when Van Wagner molested him and years later, like decades later, Escobar asked Van Wagner to, for, to, to talk about it. And he, and Escobar recorded the conversation, got it to us. We released it. Um, and then another survivor of Van Wagner's, uh, was empowered to come forward because of that. And that's actually the charge that he is now serving time for. So, um, uh, <laughs> Along the way, there there have been some disappointments too, um, and and um, I, I wondered if you might elaborate on those and and to what extent those are related to your to your shuttering. Well, I I I think you're referring maybe to the Jehovah's Witness lawsuit. Is that sort of what you're referring to? Yeah, but that 
but take it a big picture too. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure if we went uh, blow by blow since the day we started, we could probably come up with some things that, that, you know, we wish we would have done differently, but um, you know, I don't know that we have really any major like regrets or anything in, in terms of the things that we've reported on. Um but uh, as far as challenges go, um, you know, I think the first biggest challenge that we had was with McKenna Denson. I, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of your regular listeners are probably very familiar with her story. If not, they can Google her and find out all the details. But um, the the that was difficult in the sense that, um, you know, when it eventually kind of came out that uh, she was not necessarily the most honest actor. And that's not to say that she wasn't uh, sexually assaulted by the uh, MTC president in the early eighties. I don't think we really know whether or not that happened, Um, but her credibility has definitely been called into question. Um, But I think one of the things that we had done uh, and we're, I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak completely for Ethan, but I, I think it's pretty safe to say we're both pretty proud of the way we handled that story from the beginning, because if anybody were to go back and look at our original posting about that, it, there really was no focus on what her, there was minimal focus on her claims. And they were we just reported them as that. And we mainly focused on the things that he admitted to doing on tape to other women, because uh, for those that don't know the tape, he he admitted to being inappropriate with other women, but didn't quite admit being inappropriate with McKenna. And so our focus was sort of on the fact that he, of the things that he had admitted to on the tape. And then, of course, we threw in and, and there's also this sort of accusation from this woman. We, we, we can't really say one way or the other. Um, that was a that was a very stressful saga, uh, really, um, that spanned over probably over over a year. But the real big um, uh, issue that, that that really sort of seal, uh, you know, made it to where we had to close because the McKenna Denson issue really never threatened our viability. Um, I don't believe. Um, but what did was the, we were sued by the Jehovah's witnesses in early 2020. And, um, that's actually one of the reasons why that took so long for this story to get out because we, we originally planning on publishing this property story in the summer of 2020, and then we got sued and then COVID happened and et cetera, et cetera. But with the Jehovah's witnesses, you know, um, Dave, Dave had mentioned in his intro that we had sort of started to branch to other religions. And that primarily means the Jehovah's witnesses. We had some articles about them and then a number of documents that we had. And we actually had a big library of documents from them that somebody had, compiled over the years. And, um, you know, we housed them on our website there. They were essentially a bunch of internal videos and documents and things like that, that, uh, you know, the average Jehovah's Witness doesn't have easy access to. And they uh, claimed that we were violating copyright and they sued us for that. Um, you know, they, we had thousands of their documents, but I think they, they, they specifically called out a certain number of them in the lawsuit right now at this moment. I don't remember how many of those files that they specifically claimed copyright, uh, infringement on. We, um, we had a little bit of money in the bank at the time. I mean, we had the most money we had ever had in the bank as an organization, but we still didn't really have that much. Uh, I think we, we probably had a little under $30,000 or around $30,000 at the time. Um, and, but we, we of course had all these plans of using it to help 
move the, the, the organization forward. Um, and uh, when we spoke, we spoke to several attorneys, basically all of them felt we had a great case for dismissal. Um, basically pretty much every attorney we talked to was very confident about that. The problem that we were running into is that just to get to that dismissal part of the, of the process, it was going to cost us about between 30 and $40,000. And then if we were successful in that, we would then have to be concerned with whether or not they appeal that decision, which would then incur a, a lot more costs. So, um, now, in terms of the settlement that we entered, we did make that public. People can probably find that uh, if they Google it. We the only thing that we're sort of not allowed to talk to about because of uh, uh, what do you call those non-disclosure agreements is the specifics of the back and forth between us and their attorneys as far as like the negotiation, if you will. Um, but, uh, you know, I, and we probably, you know, maybe some gray area, but we'll probably shy away from like, like the real specifics of why we agreed to what we agreed to. Cause I don't want to like, you know, come close to infringing on that non-disclosure, but what I can tell you, and Ethan can add to this if we, if I forget something, but, uh, we didn't admit to, uh, infringing on their copyright. We still hold that, that we were, you know, un, within fair use, um, and we agreed to, but we did agree to uh, take down all of their stuff. Um, we, we gave them, we had done, we did a fundraiser when they sued us to try to raise the $40,000, which we were unsuccessful. I think we raised between 13 and 15,000. I don't remember the exact number, but we gave them that money. Um, and then, uh, we had to pay our attorney, of course, on top of that. Um, and we agreed to, uh, not publish any more stories about the Jehovah's witnesses or, or I think, well, probably more specifically, we agreed not to publish any more, um, documents that were produced by the organization or videos or things like that. Um, but I, I will tell you this, let me just, I'll, I'll close with this on this whole thing. And then Ethan probably has a few things to chime in on, but um, setting aside the, the frustration of sort of having to take these things down from the Jehovah's witnesses. Um, this was ultimately uh, one of the most stressful things that I've ever gone through in my life. Um, and it was frustrating on many levels. It was um, disheartening. It was discouraging. And it was just devastating <laughs> on all fronts. And it really took a lot of wind out of our sails, um, the whole process, because especially because we genuinely felt and we still do feel and we were getting signals from the attorneys we were talking to that we were not in violation of, you know, that we were within our, uh, you know, fair use um, and to not be able to sort of test that theory and, you know, have an opportunity for a judge to make the decision. It, it, it hurt really, really bad. Um, and it was uh, just a very, very, very dark days. And in, in I think both of our lives. Yeah, and part of part of the irony, uh, well, yeah, there's a little bit of irony there too because the reason why we had 
the most money we'd had in the bank is because we'd actually just done like a pretty f- large fundraiser to try and get money for liability insurance so that we would be so that we could cover our legal costs in these kind of lawsuits. Um, and but um, our our quotes for liability insurance were really high because we were view- like because, you know, Mormon Leaks, it's a very provocative name, very provocative organization. Um, and we and, and anyway, they, they just came in very, very high. Um, and so we were trying to raise more money. And so that uh, we had also spent a good chunk of money for access to the Reonomy database. Right. And it was just kind of like this. We, we were trying to go further as an organization by getting liability insurance. We also were in the in the process of, of getting a board of directors, but we couldn't get a board of directors until we got uh, liability insurance, but we couldn't get liability insurance until we got funding and we couldn't get funding until we really had a board of directors. Right. It, it was, it was a very, it was a, it was a difficult situation that we were already in and then we were sued. And then actually at the time too, it was, it was in April. And, um, and then as we were later on in, in May and June, um, as we were trying to find attorneys and whatnot, um, every pro bono media attorney was inundated with requests from a, from journalists that had been attacked during the George Floyd protests, right? And so that that also added to to the to the stress of it and and finding a good attorney that we trusted and and everything. And so and it, it, I, I echo the words of Ryan. By far the most stressful time of my life. Um, my wife, um, just days after the settlement, was actually in a life-threatening cycling accident, and that was less stressful than this lawsuit. Wow, she's okay now. She's doing great. She's actually, um, <clears throat> she's actually preparing for a marathon. So, oh, great. Okay, that's good yeah. to hear. Okay. So, yeah. let's let's. We did a poll a couple of years ago, uh, Ryan and Ethan, and we asked Utahns um, if churches. It should be forced to be more transparent about their finances. And and virtually every category said yes to varying degrees, but most said yes, except for active Latter-day Saints, which I guess is perhaps not surprising in the fact that they're supportive of their church's leaders. Uh, they were the least in favor with, with forcing churches to do that, um, uh, setting aside any constitutional questions. Um, even though they could be viewed as the biggest stakeholders. They're the ones that are paying the tithing, giving the donations for the most part. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, this comes up quite a bit uh, with our critics. They'll say, uh, well, you know, we don't care. We're the ones paying the tithing and we don't care about the transparency. Now, obviously that's not true for a hundred percent of Mormons, but let's just operate under the assumption that a majority of active Mormons do take that position. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to try to understand why they would take that position. It doesn't make sense to me, but regardless of what the majority of the tithe payers want, the church as a, as a nonprofit solicitor of donations has an ethical responsibility to be financially transparent, whether or not their constituents or stakeholders care about it or are going to read it. So to me, it doesn't change the importance of transparency or the ethical obligation. Ethan, what about you? Yeah, I pretty much, I, I echo the same words as Ryan and, and agree with you that it's not really a surprise that everyone agreed except for 
uh, active Latter-day Saints. Um, but yeah, I, again, just to echo the words of, of Ryan, that doesn't change the fact that I think at the basic level of ethics, there is, uh, there is an obligation to be at least somewhat transparent. And my, my anecdotal experience on this topic and talking to, uh, you know, active members when this comes up in, in one-on-one conversations, um, first of all, a lot of the time they already are looking for more transparency, but even in the case where I talk to some people who are, are hesitant to say they need to be more transparent or who say they don't care. Usually after about 10 or 15 minutes of talking about the subject, they come around and say, okay, yeah, I can see how that's important. So I I wonder too, like how much of it is that not a lot of thought has been put into the issue Mm -hmm. um, before answering the question. I think that comes into play a little bit. Is that what you hope Latter-day Saints take away from this? Think about this more maybe. And then is, is, is that sort of your hope? Yeah. Think about it. I would say, think about it. Um, recognize the importance of it and also understand that it doesn't have to be a negative. See, everybody always thinks because it's usually, because it seems to always be ex members of the church or, or outside critics uh, talking about this issue. I think the knee jerk reaction for a lot of believing Mormons is that, well, there must be, you know, they, they, it must be because they want to use it to, to hurt the church or to spin it in a bad light or, you know, fill in the blank there or whatever negative, you know, connotation they want to put on the whole thing. But I would encourage active Mormons, instead of looking at it that way, look at the positives that would come out of it. And, um, there's really no, there's nothing but positivity that would come out of it. First of all, whether the church is transparent or not, there's going to be sort of a group of critics out there that are just always going to be critics and adding financials in there may, may add some bullet points to their talking points or whatever, but at the end of the day, their, their talking points are going to be relatively the same thing. So, you know, I don't think that's a reason, you know, this idea of, well, we just don't want to give people a reason to complain or just give them another thing to, to, to spin. That's not, not a good reason uh, to, to not publish the financials. And there's all kinds of upside and just people being more informed and listen, there are change makers within the, the, you know, those everyday Sunday ranks of the Mormon church, whether they're trying to actively be change makers or not, there are people who are pushing the cultural needle and the more informed they are, the more equipped, better equipped they are to continue to push, um, put that change. Um, so there's really nothing negative that can come out of being more transparent, nothing negative. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious along the way, what kind of feedback you may have gotten from, from, from church leaders. Oh, they've, yeah, nothing. I don't, I shoot. I don't think a church leader has ever directly spoken to us. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Half the time, ha- half the time they would, um, they wouldn't, they would never offer comment to us, um, whenever we asked it. And if they ever did comment on a story, it was because, the Tribune asked them and they gave a comment to the Tribune. <laughs> so <laughs> is, is the church more transparent today than when you started? I mean, general conference just concluded. We heard the audit report again. Um, not a single number is given in that audit report. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that auditors have checked the finances and it all checks out. Um, or whatever. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but so, so yeah. do you think the church is more transparent now or, or I mean, hasn't I mean, it changed? Technically, I suppose they are because, 
they moved all of those stocks into that one enzyme peak fund that's easily trackable. <laughs> so, yeah, and now they report that uh, to the SEC. Yes. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the difference is they were always reporting it, but the difference is, is that now instead of having it reporting it under 13 random LLCs that nobody knew the church owned, it's now under this sort of enzyme peak entity that everybody knows is part of the church. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, technically speaking, I, I suppose the church is more transparent. Um, are they f- functionally more transparent? Is there like material, a material increase in transparency? Uh, I'm not so convinced. Um hmm. But, uh, you know, hopefully the wheels are turning in Salt Lake City. I know sometimes change uh, is slow there. So, you know, maybe there is, uh, you know, change coming down the road to, to being more transparent. But um, people, whether the church has changed or not, the people's awareness has definitely increased. So there's an increased awareness. And that increased awareness can lead to increased pressure to, to be more transparent down the road. Ethan, what do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I pretty much agree. Um, I I do think them moving their the their stock holdings into Enzyme Peak was a very small step in the right direction. Um, but at, but with everything else, I don't think much has really changed. I think if it is going to change, it's going to be a long long roll. But I I I, I do want to say this that when 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 we connected the 32 billion dollars to those companies i actually did so in a technical manner um i'm a i'm a cybersecurity engineer by trade and um and i was able to show that the church owned these domains um that that belonged to these llcs um and at, shortly after that story came out they actually took measures to to hide their digital footprints, the same ones that I tracked down. Um, and actually, ironically, I was able to reverse engineer what they did, and I actually found more LLCs, and one of them actually being a venture capital firm that the church actually runs. Um, so anyway, they've definitely taken taken measures to, to prevent uh, these kind of stories coming out, um, but I think they've also been forced in, in some ways to, to be slightly more transparent. Yeah, that that I think is the feeling that Ethan and I both have had, that any increased amount of transparency that we've seen has been because they've been sort of forced into it. And I haven't seen really any voluntary increase in transparency. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I'm, I'm curious, what's what's next for the two of you? Uh, <laughs> let's, start with, let's start with Ryan. OK, Um well, in the short term, um, you know, probably not much. I, I do have a couple of, you know, things that I've got cooking, maybe that could potentially be, you know, some stories that I can find a home for on a freelance basis. And I know Ethan is is also doing that. Um, but I, I think that uh, I think Ethan and I will probably in the next couple of weeks or months, maybe talk about having a stab at writing a book, maybe about this whole experience. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think that would be fun to sort of put that on paper and, you know, get a, a, a record out there of, of everything and maybe shed some light on some behind the scenes things that mo- most people or nobody knows about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've got a couple of 
you know, ideas that I'm sort of developing, nothing that I really want to talk about yet publicly. Um, but, uh, yeah, outside of the, you know, some freelance articles here and there that we might try to get published, it'll probably be pretty quiet in the near future. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of similar. I, I, in May, 2021, I started doing some freelance reporting where I live in San Jose, California. Um, and I've had a pretty steady stream of stories coming out since then. Um, and I, while I do actually, I do have one story that has to do with the LDS church that I'm working on and that's, but that is like a years long project. So nothing coming out anytime soon. Um, and, but, uh, I'm, I'm actually, because of my background in cybersecurity, I'm reporting a lot on surveillance, um, in, in San Jose and that the intersection, uh, of, inter- of surveillance with policing and racial justice. Um, I'm also very interested in telling, um, you know, culture stories of people that aren't being, um, that aren't necessarily being told San Jose is by far the most diverse city that I've ever lived in. Um, and there's a lot of people who live there whose stories aren't being told and I'm really interested in telling them. Well, Ryan McKnight and Ethan Gregory Dodge, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yep. Thank you guys for having us. Be well, you guys. And thanks to Tony Semerad. Hey, my pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels, we remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Solid Tribune's free Mormon land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up and we'll talk again next time on Mormon land. Mm-hmm.